Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Islamic History Exclusive Podcast. This is the podcast exclusively for members of the Islamic History Patreon group, supporters of Islamic History through the Patreon page. We are discussing the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, also known also known as the Sirah, and we are on Sirah episode number thirty-four. So, first, a brief recap of the last episode. In the last episode, we discussed the convergence of Ahmad ibn As and Khalid ibn Walid to Islam, and we also discussed the Battle of Mu'ta. The Battle of Mu'ta, a Muslim army consisting of three thousand men traveled to the region of uh, the region that we now call Jordan to fight the Hassanid Arabs who were allied with the Roman Empire of the time. And the Prophet has set a chain of command that Zayd ibn Haritha would be the overall leader. If he was killed, then Ja'far ibn Abi Talib would take his place. And if he was killed, Abdullah ibn Rawaha would take his place. And as it turned out, the Muslims were greatly outnumbered and all three of their commanders were killed. And then Khalid ibn Walid, he took charge of the for, of the Muslim fighting force, and he was able to lead a successful retreat. And so now we're going on into the conquest of Mecca. But before we get into that, there are two minor events to discuss. The first was the expedition of Al Khabat. This took this took place in Rajab, which is the seventh month of the year. So this is Rajab eight A H. And just so you can understand the sequence of events, the Battle of Mu'ta, which we spoke about last time, that took place in Jamaat al-Ula, which is the fifth month of the year. So now this expedition of Al-Khabat is just two months later. So Al-Khabat is not really a place. It refers instead to the suffering the Muslims experienced on this expedition. Khabat is um, an Arabic word for leaves that are beaten from the trees for camels to eat. We'll discuss. We'll find out why that is significant in a few moments. So this battle or this expedition was led by Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah, and it included 300 Muslims, mostly comprised mostly of Muhajirun and Ansar, and they were off to conduct a raid. This is where things get a little bit confusing, um, just for a little bit. In Sahih Muslim, the hadith that discuss this this uh, event. They were saying that the Muslims were going to intercept a Qurayshi caravan. However, I find that kind of doubtful as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was still in effect and uh, this would have violated it if the Muslims had attacked a Qurayshi caravan. So I'm not sure exactly how that works out. So I'm going to leave that one alone. But um, also in Tadi Khatabri mentions that the Muslims were actually going to raid another tribe, not a caravan, just another tribe. But whatever actually happened, the Muslims never got to fight, raid, or attack anyone. Whatever the case may be, the battle actually never happened. And they were traveling for a long time, and they began to suffer from extreme hunger. They were traveling for over three months. You have 3,000 men, I'm sorry, 300 men traveling for about three months, and their, their supplies and rations quickly ran low. And one of the Ansars, he was slaughtering a camel uh, basically every day for the people to eat. And he did this for about two straight days. And finally, the commander, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, he put a stop to that. Obviously, if you slaughter all the camels, then they're going to be stuck out there. <laughs> very difficult 
to um that's basically a death sentence if they slaughter all their camels and they're stuck out in the middle of the desert with no food that's pretty much it for them they may survive for a while but eventually it's going to catch up to them so abu Abeda had to put a stop to that and so at first abu Abeda he was he had the most some serious rations he was giving them just one date a day for all 300 men just one date a day that's all they had to eat and so when they uh, ran out of dates they began to suck on the pits of the date that's how that's how hungry they were and then finally they began to beat the leaves off of trees so basically beat trees hit trees with sticks so leaves would fall down they would they would take those leaves soak them in water to make them more edible as you can obviously think of eating a leaf straight off a tree is kind of harsh and coarse not really suitable for human mouths so they're soaking in water to make it softer and then they will eat that and that's how we got the name of this expedition al khabat remember khabat are leaves that are beaten off the tree for camels to eat and so the muslims were struggling this 300 man army was struggling they were starving and they were near starvation and they headed towards the coast and as they came towards the coast, the red, the coast of the Red Sea, that is, they came upon a beached whale. And just so you understand, Mecca and Medina are both relatively close to the shore. Relatively. Mecca is about 50 miles away from the Red Sea coast, and Medina is about 80 miles away. Medina is further north and further inland, but they're both you know, pretty close to the coast. And so it is quite reasonable that after many uh, weeks of traveling, these, uh, Muslim, these Muslims would have run into the Red Sea coast at some point. And so there's a bit of confusion. Of course, they have this huge well, and I've seen different ideas of what kind of well it could be. I believe um, Tadi Khattabri says it was a sperm well. I don't really know. Allah knows best what kind of well it was, but... Nonetheless, there was some concern about whether they could actually eat the meat of this beached well because it was already dead. And as we know, or many of us do know, the um, Muslims are forbidden from eating the flesh of dead meat. If an animal is still alive and you or if it's dying and it's still alive, and you're able to slaughter it properly, then you may eat that. But basically, Muslims are forbidden from eating carrion. Abu Abeda, he thought about it for a while, but then he saw the condition of his men, and he told them to go ahead and eat it anyway. And so the Muslims stayed there for a long time, eating the flesh of this beached well and gaining weight. Uh, and Atabari says that they were there for three days. Sahih Muslim says they were there for a month. Allah knows best. In any case, there was plenty of food for everyone. There are reports that 13 men were able to sit in the well's eye socket. My guess is that they had... Uh, uh, gotten the eye out. There's actually some reports that they were actually taking a, a bucket of a sort and was and was dipping out huge buckets of fat out of the the eye socket of this dead well, and that basically once the eye socket was empty, thirteen men were able to sit inside of it. So this was a huge well, so it may have been a sperm well because sperm wells are humongous. So, so speaking in a sperm well, I believe is the kind of well that was uh, Moby Dick and. I'm not 100% certain, but I believe that's the kind of well it was. In any case, this was a hum humongous well. So that was quite a bit. And so anyway, they, um, they would slice off huge chunks of meat and they compared it to the side of a bull. So in our modern terms, a side of beef, basically. You can imagine how huge that was. And 
After they had gained their strength back, they had eaten all their full, they eventually had to return to Medina, of course. But before leaving, so they wouldn't be stuck in the same predicament, they stripped off pieces of meat and boiled it down to make jerky. So they took the meat, boiled it down until it got off all the fat and just left with the meat itself, left it to dry. And so they have jerky to last them out from, for the rest of the journey back to Medina. Eventually, they got back to Medina and they explained to the Prophet what happened. He was pleased with it. He was pleased with the outcome. He said that the well that they had came across, it was a provision sent by Allah. And then he asked him for a piece of the dried well jerky meat that they had made and that they had brought back with them. And he took some. And this was used as proof. There are other things also, but this was used as proof that it is permissible to eat dead things from the sea. And this is um, one, there's another hadith that mentions it quite um, quite clearly. I don't want to turn this into a fiqh or um, uh, Islamic jurisprudence podcast. I want to stay away from that because I know there are different understandings and, and uh, thoughts about many of these different things for the different schools of thoughts in Islam. But generally speaking, it is permissible to eat essentially anything from the sea, whether it is dead or alive. There are hadiths that state that. And this story was an example of why it is permissible to eat dead things from the sea. So, moving on from there, that's the first minor event. The second minor event before the conquest of Mecca was the expedition of Ibn Abi Hadrad. And this took place in Sha'ban, 8AH, and Sha'ban is the 8th month of the year. In this expedition, or the background to this expedition, a companion named Abdullah ibn Abi Hadrad, he married a woman. And when he married her, he promised her 200 dirhams, but he didn't have the money for it. So he went to the prophet and asked the prophet for help with the dowry, but the prophet said he didn't have it either. And so as um, Abdullah ibn Abi Hadrad was trying to figure out how he was going to pay for his new wife's dowry, a pagan army had come by and had set up a camp just about eight miles north of Medina. My guess is they were expecting to invade Medina. So the Prophet wasallam sent Ibn Abi Hadrad, Abdullah Ibn Abi Hadrad, and 16 men to investigate. And so Ibn Abi Hadrad and the men, they arrived around sunset and they began observing the pagan army. They hid, in, they hid around different places and began observing the army, hoping to find a weakness in the pagans' defenses where they could maybe uh, hit them and scare them off or or stop them before they can't. They got too close to Medina. One of the uh, pagans, while the Muslims were observing and spying on them, one of the pagans, he uh, separated from the group and came walking around. And uh, he was riding his camel, and eventually came across some of the Muslims who were hiding. And he saw them, and he greeted them with the Islamic greetings of peace. Assalamu alaikum. One of the companions, however, attacked him anyway. I say the man was pagan. I probably shouldn't say that. But one of the members from the pagan tribe, let's do that, because I don't know if the man himself was pagan because he did say assalamu alaikum. Anyway, one of the pa- one of the companions attacked this man and killed him. Now, the background to that is that these two men, the companion and the, the soldier from the pagan army, there was already some animosity between them based on some previous interaction that they've had. So they already had some bad blood. And so... This companion that attacked him didn't do so out of um, impulse or thought he was doing something necessarily to please Allah. 
it seems as if there may have been some personal reasoning for him killing him as well. In any case, uh, with that, because of that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse prohibiting Muslims from attacking those people who give them greetings. Anyways, so next, the, uh, the leader of the pagan army, he realized that one of his men are missing, and so he gets up to go look for him. And he got kind of careless, and he didn't take any guards with him. He didn't let anybody come with him. He went to look for this uh, missing soldier on his own. And then as he got close enough, Abdullah ibn Abi Hadrad, the man who had married the woman in the beginning of the story, he shot the leader with an arrow and killed him. And then with that, the Muslims then commenced to attack. It was nighttime by now. We mentioned that they had arrived around sunset. It was fully nighttime by now. The Muslims, they began to scream Allahu Akbar, took out their swords and rushed the camp. And the pagan army was taken completely, completely by surprise. Most of the men within the pagan army, they grabbed their belongings and families as best they could and they ran off. They didn't know it was only 16 men. Perhaps they knew it was only 16. They would have probably stayed in fight. But it's nighttime. They couldn't see. They were confused. They lost their leader. Two guys had suddenly disappeared already, the leader and the other guy. And so they grabbed what they could and started running. And the Muslims with only 16 men, I guess they didn't really give too much of a chase. The Muslims grabbed what was left over, which was most of the livestock and camels that the pagans had brought along with them and whatever wealth the pagans had left behind. And also they captured a few women as slaves. And so they brought this wealth back to Medina and the Prophet ﷺ, he of course split the, the spoils of war, the booty between the men. And with Abdullah ibn Abi Hajjah's share, he was now able to pay for his dowry. Minor event, just thought it was, it was an interesting story. And so now we get to the actual conquest of Mecca. And this took place in Ramadan, the ninth month of the year, 8 AH. So let's begin by reminding everyone that the Prophet did not hate Mecca. He didn't hate the city of Mecca. In fact, he loved it. It was his homeland. And the only reason he had left was he had left was because the people there had made him leave through the persecution that the Muslims were suffering when they were in Mecca before the Hijrah or the migration to Medina. So with that being said, let's get into the details of the actual conquest. By this time, almost two years had passed since the signing of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and Islam had spread really far it has spread across most of western arabia and the prophet now had the power to invade mecca if he really wanted to however he had to abide by the treaty the treaty of hudaybiyah is stipulated once again the muslims and the Quraysh couldn't attack each other but this also included their allies their allies who were associated with the muslims and those allies or allied tribes who were associated with the Quraysh, they couldn't attack each other now, as part of it all, as it, as it turned out, two tribes, two smaller clans connected to these two larger powers, they had a long-standing quarrel with each other. These were the tribes of Banu Bakr and Banu Khuza'a. Banu Bakr was allied with the Quraysh and Banu Khuza'a was allied with the Muslims. The disagreement between these two tribes, Khuza'a and Bakr, it started long before this period of time. It actually goes back to the time 
before Islam was coming to Arabia, before the Prophet ﷺ began preaching the message of Islam. And the origins of this animosity or this quarrel between these two tribes, this is a classic case of the tit-for-tat pre-Islamic tribal feuding that these Arab tribes go through over and over and over again. Started off with this. Banu Khuza'a, the tribe that was allied with the Muslims, but once again, this these events took place before Islam. Banu Khuza'a killed a man who was under the protection of Banu Bakr. Banu Bakr retaliated by killing a man from Bani Khuza'a. The Khuza'a, they in turn, killed three noblemen from Bani Bakr, and they killed them near Arafah, which was just outside the sacred precincts of Mecca. And so that's how things remained for the next several years. Both tribes basically tried to steer clear of each other, knowing that they could be killed if they wandered into the wrong territory. And also, Islam came, and the conflict between the Muslims and the Quraysh kind of drew everyone's attention. And so, uh, they weren't really able to really fight it out during this period of time. But then the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was signed, and so now the two clans, they chose their side. And Bani Bakr, they went along with the Quraysh, and Bani Khuza'a went along with uh, the Prophet And so now, Banu Khuza'a, who was now an ally of the Muslims, they now felt it was safe to venture further away from Medina and uh, into land or territory controlled by Bani Bakr. And Banu Bakr used the Treaty of Hudaybiyah as an opportunity to strike back at Banu Khuza'a. So Banu Khuza'a, they were watering their animals at a location that was close to Mecca when Bani Bakr attacked them. And in addition to Bani Bakr, some members of the Quraysh also assisted them either in gathering weapons and, and according to some reports, even joined into the raid itself. And the two members of Quraysh who were said to have participated were Suhail ibn Amr, who was the Qurayshin who signed the Treaty of Hudaybiyah with Prophet Muhammad, and also Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl, who was the son of Abu Jahl, who of course was one of the main enemies of the Prophet before the Hijrah. In the raid, one member of Banu Khuza'a was killed. The other men, they ran into the sacred precincts of Medina for safety. And at that time, it was still Arab custom that uh, killing was forbidden within the sacred precincts of the Kaaba. And so then Banu Khuza'a, they sent a messenger to the prophet in Medina telling him what had happened. And now the Quraysh are now also concerned. They realized that the Muslims now had grounds to invade Medina because their allies had attacked allies of the Muslims. And so the Quraysh, they sent Abu Sufyan to Medina to hopefully negotiate a peaceful resolution to the current conflict. At this point in time, Abu Sufyan was now the Prophet's father-in-law. The Prophet had married his daughter, Um Habiba, and we discussed that in 
Sido episode number 30, when An-Najashi, the emperor of Abyssinia, performed the marriage, uh, even though the Prophet wasallam was not physically there. physically there. Anyway, Abu Sufyan was hoping that he could get his daughter to set up a meeting with the Prophet and maybe help with the negotiations as well. The Abu Sufyan, in fact, he wanted the Prophet to extend the treaty, work out some sort of peaceful compromise for the conflict between Bani Bakr and Bani Khuza'a, and keep the, treaty, the current treaty going. So Abu Sufyan went straight to his daughter's house upon arriving in Medina, and he tried, when he, he entered his daughter's house, once again, his daughter is Um Habiba, the wife of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When Abu Sufyan tried to sit down on their bed, Um Habiba rebuked him. She said, oh, oh, watch what you're doing. Don't do that. Don't sit there. And she pulled up the, the cushion that he was about to sit on. And he, she basically said that her father was uh, an unclean pagan and he couldn't sit on the prophet's bed. Now, Abu Sufyan was kind of hurt by that, but he uh, still wanted to uh, try to speak with the prophet. And his uh, daughter told him that there was nothing she could do with she, she could do about that and she wouldn't really help him. And so he went to meet the prophet directly himself. And when he tried to speak with the prophet, the prophet avoided him, refused to acknowledge him, refused to answer him, and just that never happened. Nothing ever came between them. And so Abu Sufyan then went to some of the prophet's companions to see if they could try to coax the prophet into a meeting. So first he went to Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr, he just simply refused to do anything. He said, no, I'm not going to help you. I'm not part of that. Then he went to Omar bin Khattab. What possessed this man to go to Omar? I don't know. But Umar was very aggressive in his rebuking of Abu Sufyan. <laughs> Omar said essentially that if I had nothing else to eat but ant larvae, I would still find the strength to fight you. So obviously Omar was a non-starter. So then... Abu Sufyan went to Ali, asking if Ali could help him. And Abu Sufyan and Ali, they were somewhat related. And I forgot the complicated way, but basically all, all of the Quraysh are related somehow, in some way. But Ali and Abu Sufyan were closely related, even though they were from uh, different clans. Anyway, Ali was the most helpful of all the companions, but there still really, really wasn't much he could do. Ali may have been kind, but Ali was still um, very much the soldier and very, very loyal to Prophet Muhammad. Anyway, Ali, he also refused to intercede. He refused to get involved with it. Wasn't going to help Abu Sufyan whatsoever. But he did give Abu Sufyan some advice to try to maybe find a way out. He advised Abu Sufyan to make peace between Bani Bakr and Bani Khuza'a. But he admitted that this probably wouldn't help, but that was really all he could offer. So Abu Sufyan, he returned to Mecca with no assurances, no extension of the treaty, and really he returned empty-handed. But the fact of the matter is that the Prophet had already made up his mind about invading Mecca, and he had also shared these plans with Abu Bakr. So there was a reason why Abu Bakr refused to help Abu Sufyan, not just out of loyalty, but also Abu Bakr knew that the invasion was forthcoming. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he then instructed the Muslims to, be, to prepare for travel. But at the same time, the Prophet was trying to keep things as secretive as possible. 
He only told a few companions about where they were going. As far as the Muslims were concerned, they were just traveling with the Prophet. They figured that there are probably going to be some fighting along the way. But as far as they knew, they were just traveling with the Prophet at that point. One of the companions who did know the details was a man named Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a, who was a muhajir. Hatib, he was a companion of the Prophet, a muhajir, one of those who accepted Islam in Mecca. However, he was from one of the weaker clans in Mecca, and he still had property and family and even children in Mecca. So when he learned that the Prophet was preparing to invade Mecca, Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a, he wrote a letter warning his family of the Prophet's invasion. And then he paid an old woman to carry the letter to Mecca and pass it on to his family. The woman then took the letter, she tucked it up into her hair, and then she set off for Mecca. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he informed Prophet Muhammad of what was going on or what Hatib had done. And the Prophet sent Ali, Zubair ibn Awam, and another companion named Mekdad to find the woman who was carrying the letter and find, and bring back the letter that she was that she had with her. So they intercepted the old woman about 12 miles outside of Medina, and Ali told her to give him the letter. Now, Ali didn't know the contents of the letter. There's no indication that the Prophet told him what was going on. But all Ali, all Ali knew was that the Prophet said this woman had something. That's all Ali needed. He just knew the Prophet said that she had it. And so that was proof enough for him. And at first, the woman insisted that she had nothing. She tried to de- deny it. But then Ali threatened to strip search her. And once he said that, she, she relented and she handed over the letter. So Ali and the others, they bring the letter back to the Prophet. And the Prophet now has the letter and he summons Hati because now the jig is up. And Hatib, he swore up and down that he was still a believer and he did not apostate. He had not uh, he did not want to betray the prophet. But he said that the only reason he did what he did was that he wanted to protect his family and his children. And Omar, Omar, of course, being Omar, he he uh, called Hatib a hypocrite and asked the prophet for permission to take off his head. And the prophet, of course, restrained Omar and said that perhaps Allah has forgiven all the sins of those who participated at Badr. I don't know if I mentioned this, but Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a had also taken part at the battle of in the battle of Badr. So anyway, with that betrayal out the way, the Muslims continued their preparations and then they began the march to Mecca. They left Medina on the 10th day of Ramadan in the 8th year of the Hijrah and the Muslims of course were fasting along the way. How do, we t- how do we deal with the whole fasting and traveling thing? Not up to me. I'm just telling you what the Sirah says. In any case, the Muslim army consisted of about 10,000 soldiers. The Prophet had ordered for uh, basically every available man to come. And of course, these men brought, very often they brought along their wives and children as well. And so nearly every capable fighting man from Medina and all of its allied tribes, and there are quite a few by now, they all joined in this march to Mecca. However, at this time, once again, most of them did not really know where they were going just yet. And as was the custom of the time, the different tribes and clans, they tend to march in groups together, 
whereas the Prophet himself, he marched in a group that consisted of the Muhajir and the Ansars. The Muhajir and the Ansar, as the originators of the Islamic State, they were considered a kind of like a clan of their own in a way, a clan within a clan, I suppose. Anyhow, anyway, anyhow, um, so as the Prophet was drawing closer to Mecca, two of his relatives came out to meet him. They were somewhat distant uncles. They had previously opposed the Prophet while he was in Mecca. And uh, I guess they kind of got the idea that Prophet was heading towards Mecca. And so they came out to to uh, try to speak with him. And at first the Prophet refused to see them. But eventually he softened and he let them come in. And uh, when he spoke with them, they ultimately accepted Islam. And so everybody knew the, the Muslims were marching. You can't really bring 10,000 people through the desert and people not find out. But the Quraysh weren't really sure where the Muslims were going. And the Prophet, once again, had kept his plan secret for most of the people there. The Muslims just knew they were marching. And so it really wasn't certain where the Prophet was marching to invade Mecca or to invade Hawazin or to invade Ta'if or some other uh, region in the general vicinity of Mecca. And so the Quraysh were speculating and weren't really sure what was going on. And the Prophet, once again, he kept them guessing, and he did this by being a very unconventional leader at this point in time. He did not appoint any commanders, so there weren't any any uh, armed f- soldiers or marching in formation or anything like that. He didn't fly any banners, so the Quraysh weren't even really sure the Prophet was coming to make Umrah or if he was coming to fight. They really didn't know what was going on. Of course, had the Prophet flown banners and they saw Muslims or Muslim army uh, with commanders joined up in formation and everything, marching like an army, that would obviously entail that they were coming to fight. So the Quraysh really weren't sure what was going on. This is exactly the way the Prophet wanted it. And to show you how secretive the Prophet was being with his plans, there were some Muslims from one of the allied tribes, they joined up with, with the Muslims as they were marching towards Mecca. And they joined up with the Prophet. They were fully armed and ready for battle, this allied tribe. They weren't part of Medina, but they were in between Mecca and Medina. They saw the Prophet and his army marching, and they, they put on their armor and joined up. And they asked the Prophet, well, where are we going? <laughs> Who are we going to fight now? The Prophet responded that they're going wherever Allah wills for them to go. He didn't want to lie, but he didn't want to tell them everything. And so those guys just joined in and, and kept on going. And there were other smaller tribes who joined in with the Muslims as well during this march. Now the Muslims are once again getting closer and closer to Mecca and the Quraysh are getting kind of nervous. And so Abu Sufyan and two other nobles from the Quraysh leadership they go out one night to investigate and try to get some more information. Uh, once again, the Quraysh still weren't quite sure of the Prophet's intentions, and they were hoping to maybe run into somebody who could shed some light on the whole situation. And while they were going out there, they ran into the Prophet's uncle, Abbas. Uh, Abbas, he had already secretly accepted Islam. We discussed his story in several episodes before. And he had always supported his, his nephew, the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but he kept his Islam kind of on, on the low key. He stayed in Mecca. Uh, he didn't, he didn't uh, make the Hijrah to Medina. So Abbas was looking for people. He was out at the same time that Abu Sufyan was because Abbas was looking for people who he could encourage to go and convert to Islam and ask the Prophet for protection because Abbas, I think he had an idea of what was going on. 
He, I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty sure the prophet didn't tell him what happened, but I think Abbas could kind of tell the signs of what's going on that uh, the prophet was coming to conquer Mecca. And so Abbas, he went into Abu Sufyan and these other guys, and Abbas tells him the prophet is coming around with 10,000 soldiers, and Abbas offers to take them to the prophet and, and ask him to for their protection. And so Abu Sufyan and the others, they agree, and they go along with Abbas. And so the Abbas leads them to the prophet's camp, to the Muslim's camp, and as they're passing through the camp, remember it's nighttime, Abu Sufyan is marveling. He's amazed at the number of Muslims, all the campfires. And I think it's kind of the speculation of all these lit campfires in the middle of the desert night. And so many of them, Abu Sufyan, he he was amazed that this was a guy he had been fighting for the past almost 20 years. This is a guy who had been, he had been struggling against. He had started out as such a small insignificant player but now he had this huge army and Abu Sufyan was very much overwhelmed with the with the uh, physical strength of the Muslim numbers so Abbas leads them through the the Muslims camp and then he brought, he finally brings them to the prophet's tent Omar ibn Khattab, he saw Abu Sufyan coming through the Muslim camp he followed them to the prophet's tent and as soon as they get there, Omar once again asked the Prophet for permission to behead someone. <laughs> he asked the Prophet for permission to behead Abu Sufyan. Abbas interrupted him and said, and, and told the Prophet that he had guaranteed Abu Sufyan and the other two men their safety. And then Abbas and Omar, they are both talking with the Prophet, trying to convince him of their idea. Abbas wants to give them protection, Omar wants to kill him. But eventually the Prophet he says that we're going to honor Abbas's um, guarantee of protection, but let's talk about this whole thing in the morning. And so he dismissed them. So the next morning, Abu Sufyan meets up with the Prophet and uh, they speak for a little while. And ultimately Abu Sufyan, he takes his shahada. And then Abu Sufyan he uh, is ordered by the prophet to accompany Abbas, and Abbas is a t he wants Abbas to take Abu Sufyan to a certain location where Abu Sufyan can watch as the Muslim troops come marching by. He's basically, I won't say trying to impress Abu Sufyan. I don't think that was the idea. I think he's just trying to to let Abu Sufyan know that even though he made the decision late. He finally didn't make the right decision. Just trying to let Abu Sufyan know that you're not going to win this one. There is no winning at this point of time. Not, for, not unless you join my side. But I don't want to make it seem as if the prophet was trying to be vainglorious or anything like that. He did try to, even though these two men had been at each other's throats and had been fighting for several years before this, the prophet was still very kind and generous to Abu Sufyan. He knew that Abu Sufyan had an ego, and so he tried to give Abu Sufyan um, a position of honor. And so he told Abu Sufyan when he goes back to Mecca, because essentially now it's no use in, re in really hiding anything anymore. I think the everyone knew what the Prophet's intentions were by now. He told Abu Sufyan that when he returned to Mecca, then whoever hid within his home would be granted safety and would be under his protection. And so this is a way of honoring Abu Sufyan, basically saying that your home would be a sanctuary for those who are concerned for their safety. 
So anyway, Abbas, he leads uh, Abu Sufyan to this region where he could see the Muslim troops marching by. And as they're coming by, Abu Sufyan is once again amazed at the strength of the Muslim forces. And as we mentioned, the troops, as they, the Muslim troops, they generally stuck together in their own clans and tribes and so and such. And so as the different clans would come marching by, Abu Sufyan, he would ask Abbas, which clan is this and whose tribe is this and what people are those? And as he was doing this, Abbas would explain, well, this is Sulaim and this is this tribe and this is that tribe. And each time Abu Sufyan was like, what what quarrel did I have with them? Why are these guys marching against Mecca? I never done anything to them. He was still amazed that the Prophet had been able to garner so much support and so many people were now under his command. And so finally, the Muslims enter Mecca. And they enter Mecca on the 20th day of Ramadan. So they left on the 10th and arrived on the 20th. That was basically 10 days of marching. And the Prophet, he had now divided his, his forces up into actual columns, into military formations with leaders and commanders. He sent Zubair ibn Awam ahead with his banner. Zubair was in charge of the Muhajir and Ansar cavalry. He ordered Zubair to plant the banner at a hill called Hajun, which is this is about a mile north of the Kaaba. He also ordered Zubair to plant his banner on this hill and not move until he got his command. Unfortunately, two men under Zubair's command broke off from the main group, got a little discombobulated and confused and wound up being ambushed and killed by a group of Qurayshi troops. The Prophet also sent Khalid ibn Walid to lead another column of troops to cover the northeastern entrance to Mecca. And as Khalid ibn Walid was entering into Mecca, some members from Bani Bakr, the guys who started this whole thing in the first place, they tried to fight Khalid ibn Walid and his forces. A few Quraysh joined in with Banu Bakr. This included Abdullah, the son of the companion Abu Bakr, yes indeed, also included Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahal and Suhail ibn Amr. And once again, Suhail was the one who negotiated the Treaty of Hudaybiyah in the first place. But this group of pagans, they were easily beaten and scattered. There was a, a very short skirmish with the Muslims, uh, Khalid ibn Walid's troops, that is. And two Muslims from Khalid ibn Walid's forces were killed, whereas 13 pagans were killed in the skirmish. And this was really the only true fighting of the day. There wasn't really any other fighting beyond this. So the Prophet himself, he actually entered from the northwestern entrance to Mecca. And he was included in a column that was, once again, mostly Muhajir and Ansars. And the commander for this column was Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. And uh, the Prophet came in riding his camel with his head bowed as he entered. And he was praising and thanking, thanking Allah as he entered into Mecca. And so now the Muslims have full control of Mecca. The Prophet's forces had entered from three different points. And they had met very, very little, if any, resistance. The Quraysh knew they had no chance of beating the Muslims. And so, essentially, Mecca is conquered. The Muslims have it. And so, the Prophet, وسلم, he had ordered his men not to kill anyone unless they were attacked first, which was 
the case with Khalid ibn Walid, the prophet. Then he went on to the Kaaba and he made tawaf, that is circumambulation, around the Kaaba seven times while he was riding his camel. As he circled the Kaaba, he used his stick to knock down any idols he came over. And as he was as he was knocking over the idols, he was saying, truth has destroyed falsehood. And then after making his tawaf, he got down from the camel and then entered the Kaaba. Um, accompanying him into the Kaaba were Usama ibn Zaid, Bilal ibn Rabah, and Uthman ibn Talha. Usama ibn Zaid was the son of Zaid ibn Haritha, who we mentioned in the Battle of Mu'ata in the previous episode. Of course, remember Bilal ibn Rabah, he was a prophet's Mu'adhan. And then, of course, Uthman ibn Talha, we mentioned him also when he converted alongside with Amr ibn As and Khalid ibn Walid. So the Prophet entered the Kaaba itself and he prayed in between the two pillars. And when he came out, several of the other companions who were, who were with him, they rushed inside to try to pray in the same spot where the Prophet prayed. And so now the Prophet turned to address the Quraysh. The Prophet was still standing by the doors of the Kaaba. And he began to give a speech. And within the speech, he prohibited some of the more distasteful parts of the pagan Arab culture. So the Prophet forbade the killing of people in retaliation for accidental deaths. Uh, that was um, basically if someone is killed accidentally, not on not premeditated murder, but accidentally, then the family of the victim shouldn't seek to kill the person who accidentally killed their family member. Instead, they, they should try to uh, seek payment through blood money. The Prophet also forbade any sort of hereditary superiority and privilege, basically what we might call nobility, where people think they're better simply because of what family they came from. And then he also forbade all sorts of um, racism, nationalism, tribalism, all those things that people um, have pride for based on simply the, you know, the person or the family or the nation or the tribe that they were born into. He forbade all of those things. And then he then he proceeded to pardon the Quraysh and free them. And at this point in time, bear in mind, the Prophet has conquered Mecca. And so the Quraysh are technically his captives. And so he could enslave them, he could punish them, or he could free them. Uh, he was the conqueror of Mecca. But instead, he chose to free them. And the full text of this speech, and there are a couple of variations of it, but the full text of it is available on the Patreon page for this episode. And it's very easy to find. Just look for Sita episode number 34. And so most of the Quraysh, they went on ahead and accepted Islam at that moment. Though there were a few who did not. But so long as they pledged allegiance to the Prophet and they didn't cause trouble, they were not harmed. So don't be under the misconception that everyone in Mecca had two choices, either accept Islam, or well, three choices, accept Islam, leave Mecca, or die. It wasn't that straightforward. The Prophet actually did not force people to accept Islam. If they didn't accept Islam, that was fine. Most of the people did, just so long as they didn't cause any trouble within the Muslim community. 
And so then the prophet, from there, he went on to Mount Safa. And Mount Safa, of course, one of the um, two hills that the Muslims run between in commemoration of the trials of of Hajar, who was the mother of Prophet Ismail, one of the rites of Hajj. I'm sure most of you are, most of you are aware of this. The um, Safa is really not that far from the Kaaba. If you made Hajj or Umrah, if you've been to the Kaaba, you know that it's you know maybe 500 feet away from the Kaaba. So the Prophet walked from the Kaaba to Mount Safa, and from there he began to take the uh, Quraysh's allegiance, their, their oaths of allegiance, as well as their testimony of faith. Basically, it's taking their shahada. And the Prophet وسلم, he took the shahada and allegiance from the men. Omar ibn al-Khattab, he sat at a lower part of the hill and he took the shahada and allegiance of the women. And so after that was over, there was some, some people to be executed. The Prophet, for the most part, pardoned just about everybody in Mecca. But there were a few people whom he had ordered to be killed. We're going to go through them right now the first was and when i say the first i mean just i'm not putting them in any sort of order i don't know who was actually first or was last but i'm just going to mention the names and their stories first one we're going to cover is abdullah ibn saad ibn abisar and we'll just call him abdullah ibn abisar anyway ibn abisar he accepted islam made the hijrah with the prophet then reverted back to paganism and returned to Mecca. So he betrayed the Muslims, returned back to Mecca. For all I know, he might have even participated in a few battles. I really don't know for certain. But anyway, he was back in Mecca. <laughs> now he was basically a traitor to the Muslims and he was in some trouble. And so the Prophet, of course, ordered his execution. However, Ibn Sahar, he was the foster brother of Uthman ibn Affan. And Ibn Sahra, he asked Uthman to intercede for him. Uthman did. And the Prophet really reluctantly uh, pardoned him. It really, it really wasn't the Prophet pardoned him. When Uthman asked him, the Prophet didn't respond. And his response, the Prophet, I guess, didn't really want to say no, but he didn't want to order his execution. But anyway, Uthman took it as a yes. As so Uthman went back to tell his, his uh, fourth brother, hey, you're free, you're free to go. You're free, you're free to uh, just accept Islam and, and don't act crazy anymore. Afterwards, according to one report, the prophet turned to the companions who were around him and said, I was quiet because I wanted you to kill him, kill this traitor. But the companions, they thought, we were waiting for a sign from you. And the prophet said, I don't give signs. I'm a prophet. Prophets don't give signs. But there was a little bit of miscommunication there. But whatever it is, it brought Ibn Sahra his life. And so that may be. That was left as it, as it was. Anyway, Ibn Sahra, later on in life, he became Uthman's governor of Egypt. Very controversial decision on Uthman's part. I encourage you to discuss, to um, go listen to it. It will be in the main podcast, the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 13. The next person who was to be killed was Abdullah ibn Khattal. He was from the same clan as Abu Bakr. Abdullah ibn Khattal, let's just call him ibn Khattal so you don't get all, the, all these Abdullahs mixed up. Ibn Khattal, he was Muslim, but 
he was in Medina with the Muslims, but he got into it. He killed his maula. A maula is not quite a slave, but a person who's under the protection of another person. Okay, not it's not a slave or a servant, but definitely there is a um, a, a class relationship where one person is is at least has more authority over the other person. And so, but once again, it's not slavery. I don't want to give you that impression either. Anyway, Ibn Khotal, he ordered his maula to make him dinner. The maula didn't, but once again, he's not a slave. <laughs> so he didn't make him the dinner. And Ibn Khotal, when he found out, he I guess he went to sleep, he woke up, found out the man hadn't made his dinner, and he got angry and killed his maula. And so then Ibn Khotal reverted to paganism and fled to Mecca. And in his fleeing to Mecca, he had two female slaves. So Ibn Khotal returns to Mecca and his slave girls, they would make up songs insulting the prophet. And so this guy was a pretty bad guy. The first guy was pretty bad also for accepting Islam, then leaving and then betraying and then going back to to, um, to Mecca. But this guy was even worse. He not only betrayed the Muslims, killed an innocent man, and then went back to Mecca and then starts to insult the prophet. He has his slave girls insulting the prophet. So he was bad on top of bad on top of bad. And so now that the prophet had Mecca, he ordered the deaths of Ibn Khattal as well as the two slave girls. He ordered all of them to order all three of them to be executed. Abdullah Ibn Khattal, he was executed and so was one of the slave girls. The other one, however, the other slave girl, she fled before she could be captured, and ultimately the prophet pardoned her a little bit later. Next person to be executed, or that the prophet ordered the execution, was a man named Mikyas ibn Subaba. We also discussed him in a previously in the story of the ifk, the slander against Aisha radiallahu anha. I encourage you to listen to the Islamic History Podcast, episode 4-0, where we talk about the ifk. In this situation, Mikyas's brother was a companion named Hisham ibn Subaba, and they were both from Banu Kalb, which was a branch or clan from within uh, the Quraysh. Now, Mikyas's brother, Hisham ibn Subaba, he accepted Islam, he made the hijrah, and he was on an expedition with the Prophet, an uh, expedition called the Battle of Banu Mustalik. During this battle, Hisham was killed by an Ansar who thought Hisham was one of the enemy, thought he was one of Banu Mustalik. When Mikyas found out, Mikyas was still in Mecca, he had not converted to Islam. When Mikyas found out his brother had been killed, Mikyas came to Medina and pretended to accept Islam. And he asked and received blood money for his brother's death. So he stayed with the Prophet in Medina for a few days. And then, out of nowhere, he killed the Ansar that killed his brother during the Battle of Mustalik. And then he fled back to Mecca. So this guy was once again a bad guy. He had not, I mean, he not only 
betrayed the prophet's trust. He lied about accepting Islam. And then he accepted the blood money. It basically is saying that he forgave the Ansar for killing his brother, which was an accident, by the way, in the first place. It was friendly fire, so to speak. And then he goes and betrays all his people, kills the Ansar, and then runs back home. So once again, really not a great guy. Next person whose death was ordered by the prophet was Ikramah ibn Abi Jahal. And Ikramah, once again, was the son of Abu Jahal. Ikramah was one of the leaders of the Quraysh. And so he was one of the chief organizers of the Confederates who uh, basically attacked the Muslims in the Battle of the Trench. He had also led a group of horsemen to block the prophet from making Umrah. And he was, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, he was one of those Quraysh who assisted Bani Bakr in raiding Banu Khuza'a, which led up to all this stuff in the first place. But Ikrimah, he fled Mecca after a few, uh, who knows how long. He was he partook in some of the, I believe in the uh, acts of the skirmish against Khalid ibn Walid. We mentioned that earlier. So Ikrimah took part in that. After Khalid had, had scattered those troops that Ikrimah was a part of, Ikrimah must have left Mecca soon after that. In any case, Ikrimah's wife remained in Mecca and accepted Islam. And eventually his wife asked the Prophet to pardon Ikrimah, and the Prophet consented. Ikrimah was pardoned, and eventually Ikrimah came back to Mecca and accepted Islam. The next person, according to some reports, who was ordered to be executed was Huwaydith ibn Nuqayd. Now, this report is kind of doubtful. I couldn't find any really bad things that Hawadith had done. According to Tariq Tabri, Hawadith used to torment the Prophet and the Muslims while in Mecca, but couldn't find anything else that he really did. I mean, all of Quraysh, <laughs> the entire city was tormenting and bothering the Prophet while in Mecca. He didn't kill any of them. Now, for that reason alone. So, this report is kind of doubtful because there just isn't an, enough... Um, corroborating evidence for it. So I'll mention it because it's in Tari Khatabri, but uh, I say take this with a big grain of salt. The next man, or the final man who had been ordered to be executed by the Prophet was Habar ibn Aswad. And this is once again another one of those doubtful reports. He was um, is mentioned that he was ordered to be executed because of the Persecution. He used to get the Muslims before they made the Hijrah. But once again, everybody in Quraysh was doing the same thing. The Prophet pardoned all of them. There's also another report that Habar ibn Aswad, he had struck the Prophet's daughter Zainab while she was still in Mecca. Don't want to go into all this again. But Zainab, the Prophet's daughter, her husband had not converted at first. He did convert later on, but at first he didn't convert. So she stayed in Mecca with him. And eventually her husband was taken captive. She was in Mecca by herself. She tried to leave. And it was during this time that she was struck by Habar. And when he struck her, according to the story, it caused her to miscarriage, uh, to miscarry. Allah knows best of all that really happened. This is another one of those doubtful reports. I'm not really sure if it's true or not. Uh, once again, not enough corroborating evidence. So that's all. that was all the men. So we mentioned six men who were ordered to be executed, but... In reality, only four of them were actually executed, two were pardoned, and 
of the last of those four who were supposedly executed, two of them was kind of doubtful if they really were executed in the first place. So we only know for certain, really sure that two of them were executed. And those two were pretty bad guys. OK, they're guys who betrayed and killed innocent people. So they were really deserving of what they got. So that was the men. Now, there are supposed, supposed to have been four women who were also ordered to be executed. There were uh, Hind bint Otba, who was the wife of Abu Sufyan. Uh, she had really done some bad things. Mainly, she's known for paying someone to kill the Prophet's uncle Hamza during the Battle of Uhud. And after Hamza's death, she mutilated, she mutilated his body and then ate some parts of his liver. So once again, really not a bad thing, not, not a good thing to do. Uh, but nonetheless, however, she was not killed. She accepted Islam and she was pardoned by the Prophet The second woman who was to have been killed was Fartana. That was one of um, Ibn Khattal's singing slave girls who used to write the insulting messages about the Prophet. She fled, but eventually was pardoned and, and allowed to return. There's uh, two other names here, but... This is one of those doubtful reports that we I just can't find anything about. I'm not sure if these things are really true. There was a woman named Sarah, um, and I found conflicting reports. Some say that she was one of the singing slave girls that was killed. Some say that she wasn't. I really wasn't sure. It did say that there were two um, singing slave girls. One of them was killed. One was pardoned. But there's confusion with this Sarah, if, um, who exactly she was. So another one of those doubtful reports. And then finally, the last woman was Koreba, there's no mention as to why she was killed. I couldn't find anything on that one. And this is another one of those doubtful reports. So of the women, at most, only one was killed. And even that one is doubtful. So in this conquest of Mecca, only two people we know for certain were executed. These are people who were murderers, who betrayed the prophet, lied, stole, did all sorts of bad things. And so they kind of deserved it. The others who were mentioned have been killed. You know, not even really sure if it really happened. So we'll leave that alone. And among the uh, Quraysh, several other people fled Mecca for various reasons. I guess who knows what, they, what, what was going through their head out of fear. Maybe they weren't ready to accept Islam. Who knows? But many people fled Mecca. But eventually, over time, either their families or their clans would go to the prophet and ask him for clemency. And each and every single time, the prophet pardoned them. So with the prophet pardoning so many people, it appears to me that even for those who were executed, if they had just asked the prophet for a pardon, or their families had asked the prophet for a pardon, they would have probably almost certainly got it. There is... No example of anyone asking a prophet for a pardon and he and him refusing it to them. The closest was the situation with Uthman ibn Affan's foster brother. That was the closest one. But even then, the prophet didn't verbally refuse it. And with the confusion, the prophet just let it go. And the man was free to go after that. And that one had that guy was once again a traitor, someone who betrayed the prophet. So. I mean, really, for these other people who were killed, I have, an, I have a feeling that if they had perhaps asked a prophet for clemency and, and a pardon, he might have even given it to them. But maybe it was arrogance or ego, or maybe they weren't thinking or fright. Who knows? They didn't ask for it, and they didn't get it. Everyone else, all the stories I read, if them 
or their family simply ask the prophet for forgiveness, for pardon, for clemency, they got it without exception. Now, I know there's a lesson in there somewhere. This isn't really the place to go into it. I'll let you figure that one out. But nonetheless, something to think about. And so now, with the pardons and the punishments handed out, the Prophet ﷺ then began the process of purifying the Kaaba. He ordered the idols within the sacred precincts of the Kaaba to be destroyed. He sent Khalid ibn Walid with a small force to destroy a couple of pagan shrines just outside of Mecca. And then, once the Kaaba had been cleared of all the idols, the Prophet ordered uh, Bilal ibn Rabah to call the Adhan, and Bilal climbed the Kaaba and called the Adhan, signifying the final Islamic conquest of Mecca. And so the Prophet remained in Mecca for about 20 days, and while he was in Mecca, he began receiving reports of a pagan army amassing just outside of Mecca. This would lead us to the Battle of Hunayn, which we will discuss in the next episode. So, until then, this will conclude episode number 34, The Conquest of Mecca. And with that, inshallah, we will continue next time. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.